We've been in the letters of John now for many, many weeks. And uh, we, went, we started in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and we have come all the way through 3 John, and today we're looking at verses 11 through 15 together. So we have come this whole journey together, and it is an exciting place to be. It is bittersweet, but it is sweet because the Word of God is always good, and I'm looking forward to uh, the text for this morning. So I want to invite you, if you would, please turn with me to 3 John, and we're going to look specifically at verses 11 through 15 this morning. So let's just begin by looking at that text, okay? Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. So let's be reminded of the circumstance here, right? Because this doesn't appear out of context, but very much within a context. You can probably pick up on that if you haven't been with us. You know that there's a context here. For example, he's writing to a particular person, and there's guys, uh, Demetrius. We don't know who Demetrius is. What is this all about? Well, just remember that 3 John is a letter written by the Apostle John to a man named Gaius. Gaius belonged to a church in Asia Minor. And uh, he was in need of some encouragement. This is at the end of the first century, somewhere between the year 90 and 100. So this is a letter by the Apostle John. And he's writing to Gaius because of a particular circumstance. There's something going on that Gaius needed to be aware of. And the Apostle John wanted him to know. Now, it is most likely the case that this man, Demetrius, that we were just introduced to, is the one who literally was carrying the physical letter in his hand. Probably didn't come in an envelope like this. Okay, he was delivering a letter written by the Apostle John, and he arrives where? At Gaius' doorstep. And Demetrius, who, uh, from our account here, has never met uh, Gaius, but shows up at his door, hands him a letter, But John the Apostle, he knows. And so John has written a letter of recommendation to the character of this man, Demetrius. Now, what was happening there? Why was this letter of recommendation needed? And why was uh, Demetrius at the doorstep of Gaius? Well, people would travel by foot and they would need some place to stay. It was very different than the world we live in. So staying with someone was very necessary. Okay, so... They needed somewhere to stay. They were believers. Believers should welcome in believers, and that's what they were calling hospitality at the time. And so welcome them in, give them a place to stay. And as we read from uh, another historical account, that it was most likely two to three days that they would allow someone to stay with them, right? So this man and potentially others with him, it seems, uh, arrive at, at the doorstep of Gaius. Gaius knows the apostle John. The Apostle John wants Gaius to know it's a good thing to welcome in these brothers, brothers that they are, welcome them in, let them stay, and treat them as you would treat me. This is good. 
Now, why did he need to be told this? Because he was being told by another person to reject them. He was being told by another person, do not welcome them in. Do not give them any greeting. This man's name was Diotrephes, and you can find him earlier in the text. Diotrephes was saying, do not welcome them in. We don't like the Apostle John. We don't like what John has to say. Get rid of them. Now, Gaius was, from what we can understand here, a member of Diotrephes' church. And Diotrephes was a leader in the church. This is a bad circumstance. This is a real bad circumstance. A leader of the church is saying, reject John the Apostle and all those who are his friends. And Gaius is saying, I'm stuck. What do I do? So John writes a letter and he says, follow me. We are the friends and your true friends are greeting you. Know who your true friends are. And so that brings us here to our text this morning. Diotrephes is wanting to kick people out of the church for inviting in friends of John the Apostle. And then he writes to Gaius, Beloved, do not imitate this evil, but instead imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So let's just look at those couple of verses. Gaius is caught in the middle of a difficult situation. Yes? Gaius has a decision to make. Who do I follow? Who's doing the right thing here? Gaius, or uh, Diotrephes, who is a leader in my church, says to do this. The Apostle John says to do this. And Demetrius is at my doorstep. Do I let him in and get kicked out of my church? Or do I let him go? I'm in a difficult situation here, but I have to make a decision. There's no option that allows him to not make a decision. Do you see it? That's very important. There is no option for him to do nothing. He he must do something. A decision must be made. And you know, this is something that is very common to all believers. That all believers are required, called to discernment and decisions. All believers are called to discernment and decisions. I know most of you in this room, some of you better than others, but I know something that is common to many of you in this room, and that is a lot of you have just made some hard decisions. I know it. I know you have. Some of them big, some of them little. But I know some of you in this room are really struggling with some people believe this and they call it good, but some people believe this and they call that thing evil. So what do I do? What's the right thing to do? What's the good thing? What is the evil thing to reject and what is the good thing to embrace? I need to know. Have you felt yourself in this situation? I'm not sure what the right thing to do here is. Do I call this thing evil or do I call it good because I'm here in both? This was the circumstance for Gaius. What do you do? How do you make a decision like that? Making decisions can be incredibly stressful. Everyone agree with me on that? There are certain personality types that love making decisions. I know you do. I know your type. 
I don't like making decisions. Amanda will commonly ask me a question, followed by silence, and she'll say, did you hear me? I need to think about that. Just making decisions can be hard because what do we not want to do? We don't want to act impulsively, correct? We don't want to ignore the situation, correct? Uh, And we don't want to overthink it and then never arrive at a decision, correct? How do we as believers make faithful decisions? Gaius had to make a decision here. I'd like to, just as we're beginning this text and as we're trying to wrap our minds around this concept here, I want to take you to another text we're going to look at and we're going to come back to this and explore it a little further, okay? So if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 14 for a few moments. Romans chapter 14. And we're going to begin in verse 5. And here we are, Paul addressing the church in Rome. That's why it's called Romans. And he has something to tell them about how when certain believers make decisions and call something good and other believers make a decision and call it evil, what do you do about that? There's a certain type of decision-making where we can be divided in our decisions, can't we, as believers? How do we handle that? Uh, Paul helps. This is not the full answer to what we're looking at in Third John, understand, but I'm, I'm gaining a perspective here from the Scriptures so that we can go back and evaluate the proper way to handle this. So just look with me at Romans 14, beginning in verse 5. It says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If you're like me and you write in your Bible, that verse needs to be underlined. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while another abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives to himself or dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. What does that have to do with decisions? Is that we are all servants of another. As believers, your life is not your own to live. Yes? As believers, you are servants of your Lord and Master. Yes? Therefore, the decisions you make are yours? Or should all your decisions fall underneath the lordship of Christ? Each decision that we make falls under the lordship of Christ because our life is not our own to live, but it is lived unto the Lord. And that's what he means at the end. So then whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's servant. So in everything we do, in every decision we make, we are the Lord's, we are his servants. And so every decision we make falls underneath the lordship of Christ because we desire in all things to serve him. Right, are we together so far? So it says, it gives an example here. One person esteems one day as better than another while another person esteems all days alike. Each of you need to be fully convinced in your own mind. In other words, it's not that one is right and one is wrong. This is very uncomfortable for, again, another certain personality type. 
if we are believers, we all ought to think exactly the same on everything. And if we don't, I've got a big problem with you. But Paul says, one of you calls one day special. One of you says, listen, all days are special. What you need to be careful of is being fully convinced in your own mind. Why? Because if you're not, then you're not being a good steward of your decisions. Your decisions are not your own. They belong to the Lord. So you ought to be fully convinced in your decisions. And we could even just pause right there and just think about that, right? In every decision that you make, do you consider that that decision belongs to the Lord? And that you are simply a steward of your situation? That's difficult already, isn't it? That's very difficult. But it's what we're called to as believers. It's a good thing. Because you know what? The Lord that we serve in our decisions is the one who sustains us through all of them, whether we make a good decision or a poor decision. We are his and he is seeking to take care of us through those. Has anyone in the room ever made a bad decision? Eh. You know, it's like every one of us makes bad decisions. But the Lord is always faithful to those who are his. He will never just drop you because you've made a bad decision. He always holds you. He always holds you. You know, Paul says, can anything separate you from the love of Christ? Can anything? Can a bad decision separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ? Thank you. Can anything? If the powers of hell cannot keep you in his arms, right? If the powers of hell cannot rip you from the arms of God, then neither can your bad decision. Is there comfort in that? I hope that you see that there is comfort in that. But now, is there a call on the believer to do everything they can to make a good judgment call, to be faithful to the Lord, knowing that even if we make a mistake, we might say when? The Lord is going to be faithful to us. So, somebody calls one day special and says to all believers, hey, all believers need to call this day special. You say, well, I'm not convinced of that. And so for me to do that would be unfaithful to the Lord because I do not call that, I, do, I don't see that. So if you're calling me to do that without being fully convinced about it, I can't go there with you. Do you understand that concept? Have you felt that pull from someone else before though? Now you have to understand that there's a certain type of issues being handled here. But before we get to that, because that's leading us back to the text in 3 John, believers are not called to mindless, convictionless thoughts and behaviors. Believers are not called to mindless, convictionless thoughts and behaviors. If you decide that a certain thing honors the Lord, you should be fully convinced in your mind that it honors the Lord. Or if you believe that something does not honor the Lord, you ought to be fully convinced that it does not honor the Lord. Now tell me, in all the things that you're convicted about, are you that way because you've been fully convinced in your mind or simply because you're imitating something that you've seen before? Imitating a thought that someone else has. Tell you how that plays out. Someone tells me their opinion of a matter and I say, oh yeah, why is that? I just, I just think that, you know, the Lord, that's what the Lord wants me to do. 
You got anything else about that, or you just think? I don't. <laughs> Never mind. <coughs> there are lots of things that you could lump into that, right? Something says, I'm f- I feel the Lord is leading me to dot, dot, dot. Why? Why? Give me anything to tell me why. Are you fully convinced in your mind based on what? There are certain things that belong to Christian liberty, things that we can have differing opinions on. We all understand this concept, yes? I'll just give you some examples. Medical treatments, food and drink, entertainment, homeschool versus public school, celebration of certain holidays, things of that nature. You may be very convinced in your mind that something is evil in that regard, right? And yet, you have another believer who's fully convinced in their mind that it is good. Uh Uh-oh, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? How should we behave toward each other in such a circumstance? just go up in the text to, uh, in, in Romans chapter 14, just a couple of verses there, and then we're going to go back to Third John, okay? So just a couple, uh, couple of verses. Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But don't quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he can eat anything, while another p- person only eats vegetables. That's a, that's a real thing there, isn't it? Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. As long as you are fully convinced in your own mind that this is a faithful thing unto the Lord. And you have reason for being convinced. You know that to be convinced takes information, right? And here's what he says. Don't pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. Well, God might have welcomed him, but I don't. Is ultimately what we're saying. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands and falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's good, isn't it? This is is all about believers caught in making a decision, what do we do? How do we handle ourselves? Well, one thing we take with us into that process is this, knowing that there is such a thing as Christian liberty. There is such a thing as Christian liberty. Now, that being said, is that what was going on in Third John? Let's look at it. Do not imitate evil, but imitate Good. Now, what we know about John is what? John speaks in, it, he uses what we call a strict dualism. So just taking two polar opposites and contrasting them, right? Good, evil, black, white. Children of God, children of Satan, right? That's his wording. Children of light, children of darkness. So this is how John speaks in strict dualistic terms. And how has he done it again? Good, evil, black, white. There are things that are good and there are things that are evil. So the things in the middle is not what he's addressing. I just wanted to make that point so we all know what we're talking about here. 
John is not talking about those things caught in the gray area that we can disagree about but agree that we disagree. No, no, there is something else entirely that we must all agree on, the thing that is good and the thing that is evil in this regard. You see, there are things that are black and white. There are, all, there are things that we must agree upon, and there are things worth the battle of helping other believers be convinced that that thing is evil. Do you understand that? But making that determination of is this one of those black and white issues or is this a gray area issue, sometimes that's difficult. Can we all agree on that to determine is this a make it or break it concept or is this caught in the gray area? Sometimes that takes some real thought. And you know what? I wish, and we're going to see here in a second, I wish there was just a comprehensive list of all the things for all time that are good and all the things for all time that are evil. And we just go back and reference the list. Is that good? Is it good to watch Game of Thrones? Well, let me, let me see here. G for Game of Thrones. It says no. So, <coughs> don't you wish that though? But because no comprehensive list exists, what are we left to do? So this can be a real challenge, yes? Our decisions will differ from other believers at times, but we must all act according to our conscience without passing judgment on another. It was Martin Luther who said, to go against my conscience is neither right nor safe, and I fully agree that the scriptures support that, and they support it here. To go against my conscience is neither right nor safe, and that was what? When they piled all his books up in front of him and said, recant, I can't. My conscience won't let me. You're making me say that what I've written is evil. I call it good, and I'm fully convinced. Do not force me to go beyond my conscience. I won't. It's not safe. It's not good. Now, how de well-developed is your conscience? That is the heart of the question. Do you have a well-developed, Christian, biblically-informed conscience? James 4.17, a good reference Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him, it is sin. If you know and you're convinced in your conscience, which has been informed by the scriptures, which has been contemplated through prayer, and you know the right thing to do, but you don't do it, to you, that thing is sin. So that's very interesting, because that means that you could do something or not do something and it be sinful, but for me to either do or not do it and it's not sinful for me. Do you see it? Our lives are very unique and yet we share something very much in common. It is a source, a source for an informed conscience. So good and evil. This is in regard to things that are strictly forbidden in scripture either explicitly or implicitly. John is relating this to primary clear examples of evil. And so what that tells us is if we are not to imitate evil but to imitate good, what do we need to know? What is evil and what is good? So that we might know not to imitate it, right? I mean, that's, pretty, that's really plain, isn't it? I'm probably saying something that's maybe too plain. But if we are to imitate good, we have to know what things are good. And if we are to reject the imitation of what is evil, we have to know what is evil. 
How do we know? One more reference, and then uh, we're going to kind of walk through the rest of the text, okay? But um, just another reference that I, I really need to make on this issue is Hebrews chapter 5. And if you would just look at verses 11 through 14 with me. Hebrews 5, verses 11 through 14. This is just another thing that we're bringing into this concept here that we find in 3 John. And uh, it says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers, and you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature. Those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So, that powers of discernment is always throws me in the ESV, powers of discernment. It just, it, the word power is not in the Greek. It just, it means fa- your faculties, which is a word we don't use, which is why it used different wording. So it's like, uh, it, your, your sense of making moral decisions is trained, how? By constant practice of making distinguishment between what is good and what is evil. Is it a conversation regularly in your own mind or in your household that you are making a distinguishment between what is good and what is evil? What do we think about that? Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Or are we simply, here it is, imitating what the culture is telling us is good? We see other people do it. We see even other people who call themselves believers and we see them doing it. And we simply just follow suit rather than being in the practice of constantly training ourselves to make a distinguishment between what is good and what is evil. Is this the way you live? Is this the way you operate? Constantly considering and evaluating. Does God call this thing good or is this not good? I need to know. Why? Because I need to live in such a way that I make informed, good, biblical decisions because I'm told not to imitate evil. And so I want to make sure before I do this thing, before I participate, that I'm fully convinced in my mind that I can do this in honor of the Lord or not do it. I I need to know. And I'm not simply imitating what I've seen. The solid food of deep biblical doctrine enables a person to make distinctions between what is good and what is evil. That's what the text in Hebrews just told us. But we must be trained by constant practice. Constant practice. Constant practice. I did have another reference here, but I'm just going to tell you the reference, and uh, you can go look at this one on your own, okay? If you want to look at another one uh, that's, that really helps here, 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 through 16. Um, just take a look at that one as well. It's another really helpful uh, passage talking about how biblical teaching helps us in all of these areas. This is what we need. But there is a standard that we must adhere to. Sometimes it's difficult. So, Paul and John both stress the importance of imitation. See, it doesn't say don't imitate evil, just be who you are. No, it says imitate good. You see, so there's a negative side to this. Don't do that. But then there's a positive side. Imitate good. Don't imitate evil. Do imitate good. 
Examples are good for us to imitate. And seeking out good examples to imitate is good. Is good. Don't imitate evil, but imitate good. How do we know if something is worthy of imitation? So for Gaius, he sees two options set before him, yes? Two possibilities to imitate. Two groups of people. Which one do I follow? Just a couple of references here. These are really brief, but it's just on imitation. 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul calling other believers to replicate him in the decisions that he makes and his character and what he's doing. Or Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Where should you be looking? What things should you be looking at to imitate? Other believers who have a good example. But that requires for us to constantly be thinking and making distinctions between those things that are good and evil. Do you see it? You see it again, 2 Thessalonians 3, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 13. It's over and over. The, the scriptures continue to tell us, find good examples and imitate them so far as they are imitating Christ, which still calls for you to be actively thinking about it, right? Never ever are we to blind, blindly or mindlessly or convictionlessly, which I don't think is a word, but you understand what I mean, to just do it. We all have to agree that the American culture more so leans to blind behavior. Just do what everybody else is doing already. Don't think about it. Just do it. Just do it. That is not what the Christian is called to. The Christian is called to act in an informed way. We ought to create a community of those that we can surround ourselves with and look to, right? I know many of you recently, uh, there's some, some, some new additions to the church, but we're all going through different things in different stages of life and have you sought out good examples, good examples of marriage, good example of uh, raising your kids or good example of how to, uh, how to r- relate to uh, unbelievers in my workplace or how to be at school with professors who aren't believers. Things like this and we look to other people in our community and we say, how do I do that? How, how, did you, how have you done that faithfully? Because I want a good example to imitate. So I would just encourage you, are you setting yourself up as a good example for others to imitate? Are people coming to you and saying, you know, I I find you a faithful person. Um, I see you doing that. How how did you do that? Because I want to be faithful like you in that. How can you help me with that? If no one has ever come to you and asked you, you might want to consider why. The other thing being, have you ever sought out people? You might have to ask why. Maybe there's some pride issues there. That we're not going to other people to seek how to do things well. But we should, right? Because examples are good. We become imitators of those that we see as good models, and we need to be sure that we have the right models set before us, right? Whoever does good is from God, but whoever does evil has not seen God. We're moving on in 3 John. I know it's been a while. We spent a little bit of time there. We're moving on in 3 John now. Whoever does good is from God, but whoever does evil has not seen God. So there he is making that clear distinction again between there are people who belong to God, there are people who do not belong to God. I thought immediately uh, of Jesus when he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. 
And do you remember how he talked to them? Were they good examples to follow? Were they setting themselves up as good examples? And every, they were saying to everybody, be like us. Do what we're doing. Believe what we believe. Be just like us. And what did Jesus say to them? He says in Matthew 23, Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but do not do the works they do. They preach, but they do not practice. Do not set them as examples in front of you. And he then goes on to give the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees, which you may or may not know. But uh, I'll, I'll just read one of them for you here. This is out of uh, uh, Matthew 23, beginning in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, and outwardly you appear beautiful, but inside you are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Not all things we want to imitate are good, even if they may appear it on the outside. And Jesus was warning his disciples of this, wasn't he? So be careful who and what you're imitating. But we come to the decision here in verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we're adding our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. This is pretty self-explanatory here, isn't it? John is giving his stamp of approval on Demetrius and his company. He's saying, now is decision time. What are you going to do? Demetrius has received a good testimony from, from everyone. What, what bad do you have to say about this guy? Why are you not welcoming him into your home? You have no reason. You have every reason to welcome this guy into your home. Now, what are you going to do? You can't run away from it. Demetrius, again, is at your doorstep. So what are you going to do? I don't know if you've ever, as a believer, found yourself in this circumstance, but you've been not making a decision about something and not making a decision about something, and all of a sudden, it's decision time. And you have to make a decision. Don't just follow your impulse in the moment. Don't give in to that, but think through it and seek out other examples to help you. You do know that belonging to a community of believers means you're not alone. Let's consult one another. Is there wisdom in an abundance of counselors? Yes, Proverbs tells us that, doesn't it? Seek out counsel, right? This is a good thing for us. Many times, though, our decisions are going to put us in difficult, uncomfortable, dangerous, and humiliating circumstances. Have you ever found that to be true? You have a decision dangling in front of you, and if I make this decision, and I kind of know what the right thing to do here is, but if I do it, it's going to be humiliating, or it's going to be dangerous. But to him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him, it is sin. There are big decisions to be made. There are small decisions to be made. But if you're convinced in your mind that you know what the scriptures have to say about this, and you're refusing to do it because you don't want the consequences, what is that saying about you? What is that saying about your level of faithfulness to the Lord and to the scriptures? Just remember 1 Corinthians 1.18. You know it, but let me read it for you. The word of the cross is 
folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You got to remember that the world is going to see you as crazy. If you are being a faithful believer, the world thinks you're crazy. Embrace it. Okay? There is no sense in us trying to hide that. In fact, if we're speaking in terms of light, no one takes a light and put it under a bush, right? You don't do that. You let your light shine before others. Let them see what they call foolishness. Let them see the decisions you make. Let them see that you want to be faithful to the Lord. Let them see that your decisions are not your own. Let them see. And if the foolish people want to call you foolish, then let them be. John 15, if the world hates you, it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world already hates you. They're just looking for those reasons to continue to hate you and to call you out on it. And then, we'll end here. Uh, you can tell I have a lot to say about this passage, right? I'm trying. I'm, mo- I'm moving along with it. We're going to look at the last couple of verses. Okay, look at verses 13 through 15. He said, I had much to write to you. And you know, again, I feel the pain. I feel the pain of that. Uh, there's a lot I want to say about this, but for your sake, let's, let's move on, okay? So I would rather not write with pen and ink. We talked about that. He said a very similar thing. We covered that in pretty good detail. I hope to see you soon, and we're going to talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. And this is what struck me about the whole passage. This right here, this is what, this is what hit me hard. He's already assuming that Gaius has made the right decision because he's calling them friends. He's saying, I know whose side you're going to choose to be on. You're on our side, and we're your friends, and you know who your true friends are. You know what camp you belong to. You know that Demetrius is a good guy. You know that you ought to be following us. We are in this together, and all the friends that are backing you and with you, we all are greeting you. We're in this together. Remember that you're not alone in this decision. Remember that you're not alone in your decisions when you're being faithful to the Lord. It feels like sometimes as a believer you're on an island, doesn't it? It's scary on that island. It's threatening. Because maybe you are removed and you're at work and, or wherever you are and you're making this decision. You're all alone. You're, you're alone there. But you were alone only so far as you are representing Christ. You are also representing this entire, entire body that's gathered together. We are all in this together. And so when you go through these hard decisions, remember that you do have friends, right? Remember that you do have friends here because we have something in common here. We all share this in common. We all have this in common together. Now, we may be very different from one another. We have different paths. We're a different age, different walks of life. That's true. But you know what? We share something in common that goes far deeper than any of that surface level stuff. We are servants of the Lord together. And we want to hold you up and bear your burdens with you. We want to do that. So don't feel like you're on an island when you have to go through this hard stuff together. Let's bear it together. Can we do that? Do you want to do that? Do you want help in bearing these things together with other people who want to be faithful just like you want to be faithful? I'm not sure if you have a believing family or not. 
I know many of you do, some of you don't. So maybe you have relatives, sons and daughters, or uh, parents, or whoever it may be who are not believers. That, that may be you. And you find it difficult because you're not, you, we're not operating on the same wavelength here. And my heart is all in this, but you can't even see it. I cannot go there with you, but you can't even tell. I want to tell you that even in that, you have someone to bear your burden with you. I know it can be difficult. I know what it is to make hard decisions when others see you as nothing but an outcast, a rebel. They see it as an act of not loving them. When in reality, we have to admit, I do love you. I love the Lord and I serve him and I must do what I am fully convinced in my mind is right. And even then, aren't you thankful for a community of people who are like-minded with you? Who are like-minded with you? You're not shut out from the rest of the world, but we operate together. And that's the community that we should have. And I'm encouraging you to embrace that. Embrace the community that is like-minded with you because there is joy and there is comfort and there is help to be found. You have friends. You have friends in Christ. John found it important to remind Gaius that he has friends because he felt all alone. You are not alone either. And if maybe we've learned one thing from John, it's what? All those who say they love God love all the children of God. And if we do love each other, we want to bear this life together with one another, don't we? You thankful for what John had to say to these churches? I am very thankful. And uh, I think from what I have heard that what John had to say has made an incredible impact on the way that many are understanding uh, the Christian life and what it means to relate to one another. And that is encouraging because what do we all want? We all want to be found faithful to serve our Lord. And the church is part of his design for serving him faithfully.